Welcome. You're listening to the Vital and Thriving Podcast for Congregations Building Beloved Community. I'm Scott Sherman. And I'm Claire Dietrich Rana. We're two freewheeling, fun-loving, kind of ridiculous Episcopal priests. Speak for yourself. Serving the people of God and God's church here in the Bay Area. While supporting each other and you in noticing and responding to the movements of the Spirit in this unique moment we find ourselves in. Welcome to the Vital and Thriving Podcast, and welcome back to the season of Ordinary Time, uh, also known as Summer. We're so glad to have you with us for this final episode before we start our break here at Vital and Thriving. As we come to the close of this season, we've decided to do something a little different and invite someone who works at the edge of what is possible, who dreams boldly and is a champion of imagination, but who does not center his work in the church. Rob Hopkins is co-founder of Transition Towns Totness and Transition Network and the author of several books, including From What Is to What If, Unleashing the Power of Imagination to Create the Future We Want which we are going to do a deep dive into today. He's based in England, where he is a leading environmentalist, organizer, and change maker. Rob, welcome to the Vital and Thriving Podcast. We are truly delighted to have you with I'm us. delighted to be here as well. Mutual delight. You know, Rob, this, this podcast that we do, um, we explore a lot of the same themes that you're passionate about. Uh, change, imagination, hope, vision, uh, imagining a better future. Uh, but we do it, obviously, it, within this Christian framework, working with congregations. So I want to start with a, with a two-part question. Um, since your work might be new to some of our listeners, could you just talk a little more about you know, uh, who you are and what it is you do, and where, where did your interest in this all come from? Um, and if, I, if you can remember all of this... <laughs> is there a spiritual background uh, backdrop to your work or your life or, or, or something else that kind of calls you or drives you? Well, yeah. Hi everybody. I'm, I'm Rob. I, um, uh, yeah, that, that question, what do you do is always a very difficult question at parties because it takes quite a long time to answer. You know, it's, it's not mm. like a, uh, it's not like a sort of a simple, Oh, I'm a teacher or something. You know, it takes a little bit of explaining. So mm -hmm. I I started, uh, I was always a permaculture teacher for quite a long time, which is a sustainable design system, very positive, very solutions focused. Mm -hmm. I, um, and then in 2005, 2006, I was one of the people who started what became the transition movement, which started just in my town as a little experiment. And very rapidly grew and grew, and you'll now find transition groups in about 50 different countries. Uh, and so my work has been a lot supporting that movement and making films about it and making writing books about it and doing public speaking about it and just being there to support this movement as it self-organizes and grows. So... And then this work around imagination has really been a shift over the last four or five years. I did a, I took a sabbatical for a year because I was just obsessed with this question about what's happening with our collective imagination at a time that demands that we reimagine everything. As mm -hmm. Bell Hook says, what we cannot imagine cannot come into being. And I felt like 
our collective mm. imagination muscle, which should be all kind of toned and beautiful, has become rather sort of flaccid and doesn't quite know what it's doing. So, mm. so I've spent the last three or four years really obsessed with this question about imagination and about longing. Like, how do we cultivate longing for this future? It's it's a it, like as we if we if we don't mm. long for it, it's not going to happen. Don DeLillo, the author in his book Underworld, said, "Longing on a large scale is what <laughs> makes history. Longing on a large scale is what makes history." Mm. And I think we forget that. We just imagine that somehow we're going to make this massive transition just by scaring the hell out of everybody by talking about extinction and collapse. And it's just we we need more than that. So, so you asked about my own background. So I was when I was. 19 and and a rather lost um young 19 year old i found myself living in in tuscany in italy in a in one of the biggest kind of tibetan buddhist um monasteries centers in europe and i spent so i spent a lot of time studying buddhism and practicing buddhism and and i guess what's what has always underpinned the work that i do is um an idea that is particularly you particularly find in tibetan buddhism which is this idea of the bodhisattva ethic the idea that you live a life of service to other people and that you live your life framed by a motivation of compassion and trying to help all beings as much as you can and i guess that was really pretty fundamental to the activism that i do from from the very beginning i read a book called Shambhala, the way of the warrior when I was 18 by Chogyam Trumpa, who was a, who wrote this incredible book, which is particularly as a young man, I think at that point, who was a bit lost and is like, that's what I want to be. I want to be a Shambhala warrior. That's what I want my life to be all about. So I guess that mm. book has really underpinned a lot of uh, what I've done since. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Rob. There are a lot of um, Episcopalians along the West Coast who are deeply committed to their faith and deeply immersed in the philosophy of Buddhism and I think see in the bodhisattva nature that you describe um, a sort of parallel in what we call kind of the Christ nature, yeah. like this constant self-giving. Um, so I think that really resonates. We have a, a term, um, many Buddhapalians, I don't know if everybody's heard that before. <laughs> Um, so you quote Dutch historian Ritter Bregman in your book, um, saying the inability to imagine a world in which things are different is evidence only of a poor imagination, not of the impossibility of change. Why do you think it is so difficult for so many of us to imagine a different world? Well, firstly, I think that's such a beautiful quote. <laughs> you know, sometimes when you're so when you're a writer, sometimes you read uh. other people's and you think, oh, "Why do I wish I'd thought of that?" Unless you just sub summed it up so beautifully and succinctly <laughs> and poetically. Well, I think you know what I explore. So the reason that I I started the process of writing that book was because I kept reading people who I really respect, like Naomi Klein and Bill McKibben and Amitav Ghosh, who were really mm. some of the most insightful people writing mm -hmm. about the climate and ecological emergency. And this term kept coming up in those com in their writings that would say climate change is a failure of the imagination. And I'd be left there going, hmm, yeah. that's interesting. I wonder what they meant by that, by which time they were off over the hill talking off about something else. And I'm left behind going, that was interesting. What did that? And so it set me off on this exploration of, well, 
could it be that we are having a failure that our our collective imagination muscle is failing us at this time and my conclusion after two or three years of doing the research for it was that that we have created a kind of a a perfect storm of a perfect storm that is damaging to the human imagination the human imagination has certain needs you know it needs us to feel rested and resourced it needs us to not feel hugely stressed and traumatized we know all of those things are very damaging to the imagination mm. the wonderful adrian marie brown who wrote the book uh, emergent strategies mm-hmm. a great shero of mine mm-hmm. she said recently i read a quote she said something like uh, fear and imagination do not often share the same room and uh, you know we know that the less time we spend in nature uh, the less imaginative we are we know that we have an education system which has largely designed imagination out of of the of its you know we quite like creativity because creativity is when you apply the imagination to the creation of things that capitalism and consumerism can market and sell to each other imagination on the other hand is a bit more wild and unpredictable and a bit naughtier and we don't really like it because it's hard to measure mm-hmm. And it's unpredictable, so it kind of gets pushed to one side very often. We know that the more the more unequal a society becomes, uh, the the more you create the conditions that are damaging to the imagination. The more time we spend in front of screens, we're consuming other people's imaginations rather than nurturing our own imaginations, and we carry these highly addictive screens around in our pockets that just devour our imagination. I always say, I always like to say to people. To imagine that you are in the yellow house in Arles, in France, in Place Lamartine in 1888, and Vincent van Gogh comes into the kitchen with a beautiful bunch of sunflowers and arranges them on the table and sits back to look at them as the light comes in through the window. And then he thinks, oh, I must just check my Instagram. Oh, and my Facebook and my Twitter and my TikTok. And then two hours later, he's watching skateboarding videos on YouTube. And I can't remember why he even started watching them. Then he never would have painted any of those paintings. And the joy and the delight mm. those pictures have given to people for now 130, 140 years wouldn't have happened. How many of the brilliant ideas that we need to find a way through the times that we're in now never get anywhere because we reach for our phones instead? So I think I feel like we have created a, a perfect storm of factors that are deeply damaging to the imagination. And that's just some of them. And um, mm. but we know that 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 we have to create the conditions in society for us to dream really big because the time for small little incremental steps is way, way, way behind us now. And there's a lovely quote they have the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto have on their window that says any useful idea about the future should at first seem ridiculous. And I think we've become so terrified of being the ones who appear ridiculous. So I spend a lot of my time going around saying to people, please be as ridiculous as you can. If anyone puts forward an idea at this time in history that doesn't seem a little bit ridiculous, it's nowhere near ambitious enough. So I, uh, so yeah, I, I feel like yeah. what I was trying to do with the book was to say, I can see something just over there, just out of everybody's field of vision which is our collective imagination and it's kind of contracting and desiccating and shrinking and what happens if we allow that to continue you know we become much more vulnerable to demagogues and and dictators we become our critical thinking starts to really really tail away and we find ourselves like the 
like the, the frog in the boiling pan in that we can't imagine a way out of the situation that we're in. And that's really, really dangerous. Yeah. So yeah. for me, imagination is something that is best done together with other people. And we need to create the spaces for that to happen. And we need to do it at scale quickly. Rob, I love how you uh, you actually use the language of play, that that we need to take play seriously. And uh, I know there's there's a place where you you talk about um, you were just talking about screens, but you even talk about the imagination of children at play. Um, and there's a place where you you quote a historian who says, you know, when we think of play, uh, first thing we think of are toys, but in the 19th century. It was it was more of an activity than an object. Yeah. What, what is what is it about that kind of shift from object to activity? Well, I think I, th- I mean, the researching that bit of the book about play. There's a bit that I write in there about this horrific, horrific toy that came out about eight or nine years ago called Hello Barbie that was the first Wi-Fi-enabled doll that had conversations with your child from a script. Uh, and it would – and it was – but it, well, what it was designed to do it was – that it would listen in on the conversations your child had with this doll and then would use it to build a detailed marketing profile of your child. And in Germany, this doll was actually classed by the government as being illegal espionage apparatus and parents could be fined if they put batteries in this thing. You know, and it's that move from when I was a kid, you know, I guess I was... I mean, there's always been toys of some sort, but I guess I became a child just at the beginning of toys being something that were marketed very, very heavily. But often still, you know, I, I would have, I always said to my parents, you know, actually the, the best thing you could give me as a toy is just to fill the garage with big cardboard boxes and give me a pair of scissors and I can make mm. tunnels and I can make them into anything. A pile of leaves and sticks as a child, you can turn it into anything. But when you when you buy them a toy, Absolutely. it usually yeah. does one thing. Mm-hmm. It's a Captain Invincible doll, and it goes hurrah when you press the button, and its eyes light up or something. It doesn't. It it can't turn into a table. It can't turn into a shark. It is basically it's Captain Invincible, and his eyes light up, and that's about it or whatever you know. So, so the beauty why play is so important is that play has that kind of that what if element to it where you can turn anything into anything and let's imagine let's pretend you're this person i'm that person and we're doing this and we're doing that and the research about what happens when children have a childhood where that where they are denied that kind of play is really terrifying you know it's not to say that every child who is denied the ability to do that kind of free play is going to grow up to be a, a some kind of mass murderer. But the research is that actually most mass murderers grew up being denied that kind of play. And there was a really interesting bit in there about the some uh, a shooter in Texas in the 60s who, who who went to the top of the university and shot people from the roof. Who then when they had, when the, when they interviewed him about his childhood, he 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 had a play free childhood. He wasn't allowed to play. So. I th- what I feel like is that we I, I, there was really interesting research. The woman called Dr. Marjorie Taylor, who for spent thirty years uh, working with children in somewhere mm. she calls the Imagination Lab, where she brings three to five year olds in to sort of put them through a series of things to to evaluate how healthy their imagination is. And she said, "I've seen no decline 
in those three to five-year-olds and their imagination over the last 30 years. But something happens when kids are five or six and their imagination tanks. And that's, that's our education system. And, um, you know, in Finland, in the education system there, they just play until they're seven. They don't learn anything until they're seven. They just play. Here in the UK, we have children having to sit tests at four. We have children of four taking days mm. off school from stress because of the testing regime they, they're put under mm. from the age of four, which achieves just absolutely nothing. So I feel not only mm. do we need to be creating a context within which our children have that capacity to play and to ask what if and let's pretend we need to be learning from that as adults because what's so beautiful about that is that it opens up that sense of, you know, there are no right answers to most of the problems. We need to problem solve. We need to think think our way through this and we need to have that flexibility to ask what if and to explore in that kind of way. And that's, that's, what, comes, uh, that's what comes from play. You know, there are many studies of, of tribes in different parts of the world where basically kids play until they're 17 18 but they but they learn through play they learn by imitating their elders and that's mm -hmm. how they learn to do different things so yeah we need to we, we need to our children should have a right to play that should be some kind of enshrined and really protected i think mm. thank you so much rob so I read, I read this book with a group of fellow priests, uh, a little colleague group that I have in 2018 or 2019 or so. Um, we all got so much out of it. Um, and of course, this was well before the COVID pandemic. We None of us could have known that was on the horizon. Um, but you highlight in the book so many different ways in which imagination is vital to our health, which seems even more relevant now than it did three years ago. Um, and there's so many ways into this loneliness, uh, childhood trauma, I mean, all these other things, connection to nature that you've already mentioned. But I wonder if you could just talk a bit about uh, how it is that imagination and health intersect. I mean, the, there's a part of our brain called the hippocampus, which is sort of about in the middle and is shaped like a like the wishbone from a chicken and it's where our imagination and our memory both fire from because in many ways imagination and memory are very similar when you're being imaginative you're basically looking through your memory for different things and then going aha what happens if i put this bit together with this bit and it's when you put them together and something new is sparked that is the imagination part so when we're trying to be imaginative in imagining a low carbon, more just, more fair, more equal future, we can only be as imaginative as we have stories of that in practice. If we only ever uh, read very conservative newspapers that never tell us any of those stories, then how, how can we imagine a car-free city, um, a, a renewable energy future, if we never hear those stories? So the thing about the hippocampus that's really fascinating to me is that it is the part of the brain that is kind of uniquely vulnerable to cortisol, So when, which is the stress hormone. When we are anxious or in trauma or in stress, and we have cortisol in our system, the hippocampus can shrink by up to 20%. So research looking at children with, who have post-traumatic stress disorder, they find they have a hippocampus up to 20% smaller. Same with adults. When that happens, what they find is that 
people lose the ability to think about the future in hopeful and positive ways and they just get stuck in the past and they get stuck in the present and and they lose that capacity to see the future and i feel like in many ways we have created a kind of a perfect sort of cortisol economy in a sense that we are just awash with cortisol and people who are so precarious in terms of housing in terms of healthcare, in terms of employment in terms of feeding their children now in the uk after 13 years of the government that we have now we have like a quarter of single mothers are having to skip meals in order to feed their children you know this is we are we are creating i think possibly intentionally um a kind of a, a situation where so many people just don't have the space to, to, to really think in, in, in that kind of way. So, yeah, so one of the th- stories that I tell in the book is that I was really fascinated then with this question because I'm not a neuroscientist. This is all news to me. I, didn't, I don't know much about the brain, how it works. So it was a real deep dive into all of this. And so after I'd found all of that out, I thought, well, what would it look like if you set out to intentionally rebuild the hippocampus? Like, what would that what would that be like? What would you have to do if if we if we reckon if we look and say, well, actually, in 2023, we have created the perfect conditions for our collective hippocampi to use the proper Latin plural. Uh, we've created mm. the proper conditions for. for the, the worst condition thank you very much thank you very much and um uh what, what would that be like so i went to dundee in scotland which is the city in in scotland with the highest levels of poverty i think and of, and of drug addiction pretty tough place and i went to visit an incredible project there called art angel which works with people who have mental health problems burnout exhaustion trauma and they work by using art. They say, when you come here, you're not a patient, you're not a client, you're an mm. artist, and you are preparing work for an exhibition. They're on the first floor of an office block in the center of the mm. city, and every year they put on an exhibition in the biggest gallery in the center of Dundee of the work done at Art Angel. And everybody knew I was coming, and everybody was very happy to share their stories with me. I spoke to one guy who had worked in local government for 30 years and then had a complete breakdown of, of confidence and mental health. And he was sitting there working on this painting with lots of little different colored dots. And I said, so do you think of yourself as an artist? And he paused and he said, I, why not? You know, and you could see people reimagining who they were. And I spoke to a young woman who said, I have two children, beautiful young children, a partner who I adore. And six months ago, I came that close to taking my own life. And since I've been coming here, I can see the future again. For the first time in years, I can see the future. I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll go to art college. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. And I said to the people who run the place, what, what are you doing here? Like, why, why does this work? And they said, because we've created a place of safety and a place of hope. And so few people have neither of those things. And so, you know, and then we wonder why at a time when we have to reimagine everything, it's just not happening. It's because we've created the worst possible conditions for that. So we need to start bringing that back in our movements, in our organizations, in our churches, in our, in, in whatever, wherever we have influence, we need to be creating the space 
for the imagination because it was one of the main things I learned from writing this book was that the imagination needs space. That we can, all of Albert Einstein had mm-hmm. said he got his best ideas when he rode his bicycle in the forest, not when he was stressed out with some mm-hmm. deadline of some paper he had to finish writing. And, we, and we, we've lost that space and we need to put it back again. Even like most organizations basically do one thing and that's what they do. And they'll just keep on doing that thing unless they intentionally make the space to rethink and say, hmm, maybe that's a really bad thing to be doing and we need to be reconsidering. So making that space is fundamentally important. And that's for us as human beings. And doing that is, is it makes us much healthier too, I think. Uh, you, you talk about this, I know, as, as a matter of attention, uh, being able to pay attention. Uh, we, we've had some issues here in San Francisco uh, recently where... Uh, the air traffic controllers are getting confused and uh, flights are being turned <laughs> around a couple of times before they can land and you know this sort of thing but i you say that you know these like highly focused kind of attention jobs like you know air traffic controllers they, they only have like a three-hour shift uh, <laughs> because of what's involved but then you tell another story about a a, a facebook uh, executive who you know, wouldn't let her child, you know, use Facebook just because of how how that kind of distraction keeps it just makes it impossible to pay attention. Um, I know I, myself if, if I'm not very mindful, my inbox can become my to do list, and I just start to feel like mm-hmm. a, a I don't know a sentient billiard mm-hmm. ball <laughs> being bounced around by all the little things that are dinging and telling me what to do. Where are you seeing people reclaim mm. attention? Where is it happening? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, you know, there was a serve, there's a study that I talk about in the book, which said that, which concluded that 28% of the time in the, in the, in the British economy, 28% of the time when people are being paid to do something, they spend that time being completely distracted. Mm. So you start out writing an email, think, oh, I must just look up a, a piece of information for that. And then you go to this and then it sends you over to that. And then and then an hour later, you, you think, oh, yeah, I was supposed to be writing that email. <laughs> You're reading something yes. really kind of interesting. <laughs> but if someone asked you an hour later what it was, you will have completely forgotten. And uh, I think it's a really... It's really dangerous. There's a guy called Johan Hari who wrote a book called Stolen mm. Focus, I think, which is about that. And there's a lot of people writing about that. I interviewed a guy mm. called Dr. Larry Rosen, who does a lot of research about um, the impact of smartphones on our attention. He said, I would say that our attention falls precisely in correlation with the amount of time that we spend uh, on our smartphones. And the point of the, the, the reason that the attention part of it matters is is like coming back to my Van Gogh story. It's like art is basically distilled attention. When you look at art, you are looking at somebody's concentration that they have managed to turn into something that then asks you to give your your attention to it as well. And as our attention spans get shorter and shorter, and I've noticed it, you know, in in the 15 years I've been involved with transition, 15 years ago, I would write 1500 word blogs exploring ideas people would devour them people love that kind of stuff now you have to kind of reduce that into a sort of two three hundred words or a little video or something on tiktok do you know what i mean it's like it's like uh, so so moving and, and it gets us 
it gets us more into this thing of just explain something to me really, really simply and quickly because that's that's as much as I can concentrate. It's like, but this is a really complicated thing. I can't explain to you the Palestinian-Israeli conflict in 30-second uh, video because it's really complicated and you have to understand. Mm-hmm. So so we become, I think we, we become we become much less able to grasp complex mm. ideas. And yeah, I think, you know, it's a question. To, everything gets reduced to some kind of binary. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and we, yeah. we lose, there's a beautiful term I came across recently, which was polarity management, which was this yeah. idea that actually it's, uh, it's fine to be somewhere on a continuum. It's fine oh, to oh, say. Oh, oh Rob, yes. this is a feature of our work with our clergy. We, I'm smiling yeah, I'm because sure. Scott just led a presentation on this like a month ago. <laughs> it's like, it's really fine to, to, to just say, I don't know, or I'm somewhere. I kind of, you know, and, and in terms of that question about attention, I'm really interested to hear from you guys, actually, because it's a question that, you know, when I was 19 and I was living in a in a Buddhist center and I spent three years learning to meditate and to really concentrate and to and to have that kind of contemplative space regularly on a you know, kind of several times a day in my life. And and I'm always always really interested to and I didn't have a smartphone. I, the internet didn't exist. It wasn't a thing. I could sit and I could read a book uh, for hours. I read Anna Karenina once, for heaven's sake. It's the size of a bro- <laughs> It's the size of a breeze block. I couldn't get. I couldn't get into that at all. Now it's huge, you know. And so I, uh, when you're trying to, when you're part of a tradition which is really rooted in contemplation, in meditation in that kind of deep reflection, how, how you guys have seen that change over time, people's ability to do retreats, to, to, to mm. you know, to, to, to take that kind of time to really reflect and, and pray and meditate. How have you seen that change over time? Oh. Well, my, um, my assisting, one of my assisting priests is a IT professional. Um, so she's bivocational. She's a priest, but she's a, works at a tech company and she's in communications. And she told me recently there was a study of like current teenagers and that their attention span is like seven seconds. Um, and I was like, wow, you know, in the Christian tradition, we preach like 10 minute sermons in the Episcopal church, which is considered short. Like you can still find like Scott grew out of a tradition where like, you know, preachers would go for like 45 minutes, an hour, like, you know, if they're on a roll, they're just continuing. I I never went longer than 25. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's a spectrum, but you know, 10 minutes, that's like exponentially, you know, beyond seven seconds. Um, And I, I keep that in mind a lot when I'm preaching, like when I teach other people about preaching, I talk a lot about like planting breadcrumbs, like people's attention is going to wander. And so you need a way back into it, like pretty regularly, you have to kind of reinvite people into what you're exploring. And that's just one small example. But I think a lot about this is also a personal question for us as spiritual leaders too. You know, we have to hone in on our discipline of, of staying connected and attending to what really matters. And I think a lot about how in other traditions, when you're learning mindfulness or learning meditation, for example, you know, like the, the key of meditation is not never being distracted or never having your mind wander. It's coming back like that's the magic moment right when you notice your mind has wandered and you turn back and building that capacity um 
And I think, you know, in the Christian tradition, we talk about repentance, like this is the core of Jesus' gospel, repent. Repent just literally means turn back. Like it's the same idea. Like when you notice you've lost your way, turn back. And um, I think of that as kind of a, a guiding principle. We have these deep traditions that can anchor us in these deep practices. And, you know, over the course of time, we have to recenter ourselves. I, I would just say, you know, working with congregations emerging out of the pandemic, um, I, I noticed that um, the uh, industrial psychologist Adam Grant talked about this, this notion of languishing. Uh, you know, people like not flourishing, not depressed, but like somewhere in this unhappy middle. Um, and that, you know, emerging kind of coming back into life was just, mm. it, it was like, it was like an astronaut coming back into gravity or something. Just, you know, it's just really, it's, everything was just harder and people were less patient with each other. And so we, mm. we really talked a lot about encouraging people to kind of come to develop their own rule of life. Uh, just a kind of a monastic term, but it, it's almost, you know, experiment with things, whether it's, you know, sitting, you know, meditating for five minutes, uh, spending a few minutes in prayer, looking at your day, just mindfulness uh, around what you're hoping to, to see, uh, gratitude at the end of the day, uh, mm. you know, just reflection, reflection, finding a rhythm that actually works for you, your life, the way you're wired. I, th mm -hmm. I think it makes a tremendous, tremendous amount of difference in, in body practice as well that involve breath and movement. I think um, instead of <laughs> it all just being up in your head, uh, we, we, I think we're in a community now where we are really trying to help each other find what helps. Yeah. And I think that this attention question that you just responded to, Rob, like I hear from so many of my parishioners, and those in our community, like they just feel like they're constantly on now, especially after the pandemic, the like 24 seven nature of work and responsibility. And there's this idea, it's very hard for people to carve out, you talked about spaciousness, to carve out any part of their life or their day where they don't feel like they are incredibly stressed. And to your point, then they just kind of keep doing what they're doing because they have to, to make it to the next <laughs> responsibility, check the next box. Um, and it's, it and it's quite and it's fascinating to me how that, how that, how that has happened. You know, I think, yeah. you know, I remember, I remember life before the internet. It was grand. It, it wasn't, I was, I don't remember any of that time thinking, God, I wish we had uh, something that would do that. It, I, it was never a particular need. And I, I, I would say to my kids, you know, imagine, it's a bit like um, if someone said, like, in the future, wherever you are, the postman is going to come running in and give you letters. You could be on the toilet and the postman is going to come in and give you post and is going to expect you to, to respond to that post while you're on the toilet. You'd be like, what? Get out of here. That's like, but actually now we're all half the we spend half our time sitting on the loo answering emails to people. It's like, how did we let that happen? Like, we've, we've allowed that sort of time that should be just our time to read a book or, or, or not, not just toilet time, obviously, but you know, that time when we go for a walk, we've always got these things. We've always got mm -hmm. these things. We're always on call. Like you say, you know, 
we could be sitting in bed at 11 o'clock. We wouldn't, we would never have, you know, 40 years ago, people wouldn't have got into bed with their typewriter and sort of be sitting there bashing out letters uh, to things. It's like it just wouldn't have happened. You know, the, the point of this is that is that there are people, very powerful, massive, massive companies who value your attention much, much more than you do and who value that attention down to the fraction of a second and, and monetize how much that is worth. And it's a, there's a book I read by... Um, uh, I can't remember his name now, but anyway, he wrote, he wrote this book where he where he talked about if you bought a sat nav for your car and you said take me to Boston and you ended up I'm in gonna, Oaxaca. I'm going to translate here for a second, Rob. So this is a Google Maps or Apple Maps for your. Oh, is sat nav? I always assumed sat nav was an American thing. Is that not what's it called? Okay. The thing you have in your car that tells you where to go. Oh, is yeah. it really? No, okay. No, that's one of yours, yeah. Sorry. What an educational podcast this is. Uh, so, so if you have one of those things in your car that tells you where to go and you set it and said, take me to Boston and you ended up in Oaxaca, you would say, this is absolutely rubbish. What, why did I buy this thing? It's a complete waste of my time and money. Actually, all the time we, we set out to do one thing and we end up doing something completely different. You know, the, 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 all of those platforms that we use that we imagine make our lives easier actually are just, are just there to distract us and want us to spend more time on that platform and to keep us there and use highly addictive technologies to make us do so. So we have to find a new way, a new relationship with those technologies and fast, I think. Mm. So you explore all these ways in which we as adults can kind of um, cultivate imagination, create these spaces, but you also explore how to kind of avoid raising future generations into this um, challenge that we find ourselves in. Uh, so my parish has a Reggio Emilia preschool and elementary school, okay. um, and it's... Uh, it's so beautiful to see children like doing what you were describing, playing with blocks and sticks and like have it, having this incredibly robust education, but also learning through play, which is a really central tenet of mm. that approach. Um, you have this quote from Sir Ken Robinson that I had not heard before I read your book. If you design a system to do something specific, don't be surprised if it does it. If you ran an education system based on standardization and conformity that suppresses individuality, imagination, and creativity, don't be surprised if that's what it does. I know you're very passionate about education and, and cultivating the creativity and, and spirit and resiliency of young people. So I wonder what comes to mind when you hear that quote and, and where are you seeing possibilities for different ways of nurturing the young people in our communities? Well, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is the first thing that comes to my mind is if if any if there's anyone listening to this who hasn't watched Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk, mm. TED Talks, I think he did maybe two or mm -hmm. maybe three, they're utterly brilliant, and very, very mm -hmm. funny and very, very thought provoking. And he passed away last year. And I think he was a huge mm. loss uh, to us all because he was one of the smartest people thinking about this stuff. Um, I feel like we have the worst possible education system that we could have right now. You know, what we, here in the UK, 20% of our economy is what's called the creative sector. So designers, music, artists, writers, mm -hmm. and so on, which is bigger than aviation, uh, the manufacturing of airplanes, cars, the life sciences, all put together is the creative mm -hmm. sector. Yeah, we have, but it's kind of it kind of exists by default, really. It it exists in spite of our education system, not because of it. If you go to a government-funded school, 
They cut all the funding for arts, for theater, for music, for literature. Mm -hmm. They're cutting English literature now as a degree subject. They're cutting all of that stuff is disappearing. If you go to a private school and you have parents wealthy enough to send you to a private school, then um, uh, then they all have amazing theater facilities and amazing art rooms because they understand that's how you produce people who are rounded, problem solvers, creative people, is you have to have that as part of it. And actually, you'll be a much better scientist, a much better mathematician, a much better engineer if you have a, a rich imaginative life as well. Um, two of my children went to a school near where I live, which was a democratic school, where the children in the school had the power to hire teachers, to fire teachers, to change the school rules. And you would think, oh, my God, this is going to just be mayhem. And it's going to be absolute Lord of the Flies chaos. Actually, they had to learn how to do it. They had to learn that mm. democracy is something we practice here every day. And you have to learn how to do it. And when you make decisions, mm. you're making them not just based on your own self-interest. You're making them on in, uh, with a responsibility for your community of peers who you're with here. Mm. So um, uh, I feel like I, did an I do a podcast called From What If to What Next, and we did one mm -hmm. which was called uh, What If Young People Reimagined the Education System with two phenomenal young people, a young Muslim 18-year-old uh, young woman and a non-binary young person for about the same age. They were so smart and incredible. I was thinking, my God, when I was 18, mm. I could barely string a sentence together. And these young people were just so phenomenally articulate about what they wanted it to be. And they wanted it to be a space where people learn to debate and people learn critical thinking. People learn kindness and the kind of inner skills that young people need now around personal resilience mm -hmm. and meditation and, uh, you know, how to look after themselves physically, how to look after themselves financially. You know, we get, it's, we're still teaching kids for the 20th century. And what we should be, I think, whenever I go into universities, I say every single course that you teach, you should be teaching through the lens of the climate and ecological emergency. Because whatever it is, you should be leaving here in three or four years ready to roll your sleeves up and get stuck in because that's what we need. Nothing else. But we're still teaching economics courses for the 20th century where we're teaching kids about economic growth and about, you know, infinite resources and yeah. all this kind of stuff. So so mm -hmm. we are massively failing young people. And and even the, the just down to the, the mental health epidemic we see in young people, the number of kids suffering anxiety and stress and all that it's like really if you look at those countries that are doing best in terms of happiness and well-being and economically they tend to be the kind of scandinavian countries who have an education system where like i said before with finland they play until they're seven mm -hmm. uh, they have a completely different culture and emilio reggio emilio is a beautiful example which you mentioned and i think that it's not like we it's not like we're struggling for lack of good models Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so so we, we we absolutely need to reassess our system. I think. You know, Rob, Rob you said something there. You're, you're talking about just these, you know, the intractable intractable problems that are there: uh, systemic racism, uh, economic exploitation, uh, the climate crisis. Uh, right now, I I have several friends from San Francisco who are working in New York City this week, and you know they're they're reaching out about the fact that they're having trouble breathing because these wildfires from Canada yeah. are just filling, filling New York city with smoke, just, which is what we were having, you know, year after year here in, 
California, they're they're being triggered <laughs> with you know the memory of just how awful it was here. Yeah. Um, and and yet, so much of what you're talking about is it seems to me this project is about how to cultivate hope, how to mm. cultivate hope in the in the midst of this. As we come to you know the end of our time, I'm wondering if you could just talk to us about how do we cultivate hope, and maybe just a word about what what you're doing now as you kind of think about your work now and where it's going to do that. Well, I always I always think that hope. There's two different kinds of hope. There's a kind of passive hope that, and there's a hope to. You know, hope that is like, I really hope the COP28, the international climate negotiations, will solve climate change. But that's not going to happen. You know, we can't put the hope, if you put your hope in the, in the hands of other people, whereas hope too is like, I hope to do this, do that. So it's an active thing. Rebecca Solnit, who I just love Rebecca Solnit's writing. Oh, she she's says, a local. She's a local. Oh, Oh, if, yeah. if you if you happen to if you happen to bump into her, you could say Rob would love you to come <laughs> on his podcast. I bumped into her at church one time, so there you go. I know. Okay. Well, she, she she has this lovely thing where she says hope hope is an axe that you use to break down doors. You know, hope mm. is hope is something kind of alive and strong and powerful. And you know, I I think anybody. Paul Hawken, who writes a lot about environmental stuff, he puts it really beautifully. He says, you know, if you if you read the climate science and you're not a pessimist, you haven't read it properly, go back and read it again. But if you've spent any time among the movements of people around the world who are trying to do something about it, and you don't feel optimistic, then you don't have a heart. And Peter Kalmus, who's a fantastic climate scientist, activist, he says, uh, when he was asked what gives him hope, he said, the fact that we've barely tried yet. So for me, where my hope comes mm. from is that I have this very kind of charmed existence of going around and visiting endless places where things are happening. You know, we, we, we are not stuck for lack of ideas. We are not waiting for somebody to create some amazing machine that will somehow, or the great killer app that will solve all of humanity's problems. Everything that we need to do already exists somewhere and is working really well somewhere. And we need to scale all that stuff up uh, really quickly. So I think, if I think if you're hopeful and optimistic all the time, you're kind of not paying attention. But at the same time, if you're pessimistic all the time, you're kind of paralyzed. And I feel like pessimism is really a luxury that we don't have at this time. And that actually what we really need to be doing is like Rebecca Solnit says, we need to be breaking down doors and making stuff happen. And in a way where we're not scared of people saying that's ridiculous, where we wear people saying that's ridiculous, kind of as a badge of honor. And, uh, yeah. and we get on and create things. And there's no guarantees. You know, Joanna Macy always says, you know, there's no guarantees in this work, but we do it because it's the work that we have to do. And the hope comes from what we do. You know, the things that make me hopeful are things that I've been part of creating and part of I can see where I live, things that have changed because we got up our, off our backsides and actually did something about it. Mm. What a wonderful place to end. Rob, thank you so much for speaking with us today. This oh, has just pleasure. been such a gift to us. I'm sure to our community too. Well, um, but you. you can't leave yet. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, I've got my little question. That's right. we, we, like, we have a little tradition that we call the lightning round where I'm going to okay. ask you some questions. You have to fire back in 20 seconds or less. Oh, if you're gosh, ready. 
<laughs> the stress. I haven't even had a coffee. Okay, go on. Yes, well, <laughs> uh, well, we'll start there. All right, my first is this, Rob, and it is this. Um, you know, we hear that several, I have several running debates over what the best go-to English tea is to drink, uh, builders, Typhoon, PG tips, whatever, right down to the Ted Lasso who think it's just horrible stuff. So coming to you now, a man from England, what is your go-to tea of choice? Well, I must just clarify for people, builders tea isn't actually a brand of tea. It's, it refers more to the strength of the tea. You can't go to a shop and buy builders tea, just to clarify for for, uh, uh, people. So um, while I don't drink tea, I've never drunk tea. I think it's horrible stuff. Uh, I I don't drink coffee either. And I imagine I lived in Ireland for 10 years and I didn't drink tea. Every social interaction starts with a cup of tea and I just can't drink it. So I would say the best kind of tea is a nice peppermint tea that you've picked from the garden. Uh, mm. Yeah, that's my favorite kind of tea. We continue. Yes. What is one thing in the last week that inspired you to keep doing the work you're doing? Oh yes. Okay. So one the thing that has inspired you can edit out the pause and just have a <laughs> So I I spent uh, the weekend in a place that I love near where I live which is just this beautifully wild place in Cornwall. And me and my wife go camping there. And it's a whole campsite that's managed for conservation. And we camp, we camp in a part of the site where we're surrounded by skylarks taking off and singing and flying all the time. Mm. And we go there and we read books and we draw, I draw pictures. And for me, it's like you know, a big part of being an activist is that we are aware of and we manage our own burnout and that we give ourselves space to just be and relax and unwind and I did that and I can really feel the benefits mm. of it since I've done that yeah mm. and then maybe the name of someone you know working in your space who isn't a white male <laughs> that you're listening to right now or learning from that you just think we should know more about Oh, there's a long list. And I, th I think it's really important on the podcast that I do. I, I, we have a rule of never doing any episodes with two white male guests. And, it's, mm. and it means that we have so many more, so much more interesting. I mean, I'd say Adrienne Marie Brown, but I would mm. also say uh, Mariami Kaba, who is phenomenal prison abolition activist, who wrote a book called We Do This Till We Free Us, which I think is one of the great uh, works of the imagination. Um, Rebecca Solnit, of course, who I mentioned before, and uh, Walida Imerisha, who does a lot of writing about Afrofuturism and things like that. All of the great works, all the great thinking about radical imagination for me at the moment is coming from women writers of colour in the US. Jaina Brown wrote a book mm. called uh, uh, Black Imagination, I think. Um, yeah. And listening to Sun Ra Records. <laughs> it was an amazing awesome. jazz musician who had this extraordinary philosophy of how he came from Saturn and travelled through space and was one of the great Imagineers of the last century, I think. Oh. Okay, Rob, thank you so much. This was wonderful. We so enjoyed having you on the show today. Pleasure. It's been a delight. I'll go and have a cup of tea now. <laughs> and thank you it's been lovely <laughs> meeting you peppermint yeah. water <laughs> yeah. where would the church be without tea <laughs> and terrible coffee yeah <laughs> thanks Ryan. thank you 
So Scott, what did you learn from Rob today? Well, Claire, I'm going to tell you, I, I hate to do this in public, but he, he not only does not like tea, but he does not know tea. Builders <laughs> is, a, is a brand, I know, because I, I have a box of it uh, upstairs in the tea drawer. So, really missed his opportunity to represent all British people there. <laughs> I mean, I, I just... I just, don't. I just don't. In fact, it's in a yellow box and it has little builders on it, like doing their work, getting their strong cup of tea. So, um, now, I, what a refreshing human mm. this mm -hmm. guy is. Um, I, I was thinking of the Gerard Manley Hopkins about Christ playing in 10,000 places, lovely and mm. I is not his, <laughs> you know, mm. there, there's just a, there's a spiritual sparkle in him that I recognize mm -hmm. and was inspired by. Um, you know, for me, the, uh, the most, I guess, of the many things that were inspiring and helpful, I was really struck by this idea of, you know, he's talking about children reimagining mm -hmm. uh, education and how, uh, you know, how with that sense of, you know, even though there's a tradition and there's a lot of research and learning around education, the fresh, you know, that freshness they bring is actually really intelligent and helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and when I think about the project of sort of innovating uh, the church, uh, which is in such serious decline, and essentially there's so much about it is built for a culture that no longer exists. Mm. It just seems to me that one of the just essentials is how do we incorporate the imagination of young people as we think about the work of mm. innovating church. Um, mm. I think we still, when I say we, I'm talking about myself. I think there's still a way in which we're primarily, we're trying to pass something onto them and uh, sort of, you know, tradition them in things, you know, right down to the, you know, all the tastes, all the preferences um, how do we create a more kind of uh, something that really actually cultivates their imagination and mm. their their genuine, you know, engagement in the shape of the church? And it, mm. yeah, yeah. You know, my my takeaway was also around well related to the education piece. This um, he talked and you talked about this longing that we need to cultivate in ourselves, a longing for a different future, a longing for a deeper connection with one another, with ourselves, with God. Um, and he had this quote about asking the kinds of questions that evoke a deep and rich sense of the wonders we can still create. That was from the book. And I just, I love mm. that idea of like, what a gift it is in the church when we can help one another to like create that sense of excitement and and just sink into the aliveness of God's presence and God's spirit in our midst and and feel how energizing that is. Um, I know we talk a lot in Vital and Thriving about God's preferred and promised future. And I, I feel like finding our way into that conversation where it's it's not like, oh, there's this thing we have to get to and it's going to take a lot of work, but rather this like Oh, what a gift it would it will be to journey together in discovering this preferred and promised future, um, oh, yeah. which seems like such a different 
posture and, and so much more enlivening. I'm feeling so much better about what's in front of us. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready to, I'm ready to take the solid X. <laughs> what a, what a great Indeed. quote that is too. Just what a, you know, it's like on the one hand, not really don't be in denial about the seriousness of the challenges, but to really lean into the hope. And I think mm. particularly as we kind of move, uh, you know, right out of uh, just past Trinity Sunday and just the mm. fullness of the story mm. of the hope that is the hope of the universe. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm encouraged. Yeah. yeah. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us today. Uh, this podcast is going to go on summer break for the next few months, but we will be back Claire and I, axes in hand, <laughs> for another exciting season. And we hope you have a, a wonderful few months. We'll see you soon. This episode of the Vital and Thriving podcast was hosted by Claire Dietrich Rana and Scott Sherman. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jeremy Sherman as tribute to Django Reinhardt and the Hot Club of France. This podcast is part of Vital and Thriving Congregations, a joint initiative between the Center for Church Innovation and the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California. For more information, visit churchinnovation.org.